morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. It's good to see you here this morning, and particularly if maybe this is your first Sunday here, first Sunday worshiping with us. Trust that the Lord will uh, continue to minister to you, to your heart, uh, and continue to, to grow you as he is growing us. GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. That really happens in a lot of different ways throughout the week. That doesn't just happen on Sundays. It really does happen in all kinds of almost hidden ways from Monday through Saturday. But yet there is something really, really unique. There is something really special about being able to gather together as we are this morning in God's house, singing his praises together with one voice and surrendering our lives under the word of God. And so I would direct your attention now to the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, turn there. The words will be up on screen as we continue here in our series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12. And I'll be reading verses 28 through 34. Uh, as you're turning, I know uh, several of you, many of you were praying for our elders retreat among our three churches. We had that this last Thursday through yesterday afternoon. I uh, really appreciate your prayers. The Lord heard your prayers. Uh, I'll have more to say about that in the week, weeks, first couple weeks actually. You'll hear more uh, by way of clarification. Uh, but the Lord is really gracious to us, so we're praising God uh, really for a sweet time together. Uh, I, I love being uh, one of your elders. I love being one of your pastors. It's because I love you. And that was, uh, I was reminded of that um, this week. So it, it is a huge privilege to be able to open up God's word to shepherd you. Uh, you make my job a joy and not a burden. And uh, my wife really thanks you for that. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please stand as I read Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, going through verse 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated, and would you join me in prayer? Our great God and heavenly Father, I come to you now and ask, and I come to you, Lord, not out of habit, not out of tradition, not because this is what I'm supposed to do at this time, but out of a deep desire, a deep desire of my heart that you would come and that you would speak to us through the power of your word. Dwell in this place, Lord, and work in our hearts and our minds. Produce 
greater faith, deeper repentance, richer joy, all to the end that you would be glorified and that your people would be built up and edified. We need your help to do this this morning, Lord. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think the most important moral command is? I mean, what functionally orients and directs and organizes your life? What is the most important moral command that you live by? Now, the answer may not be all that obvious, especially from the world's perspective. If you asked the man or woman on the street, perhaps you asked, surveyed some of your friends and neighbors, you'll likely to hear a number of different and popular answers. Well, the most important thing is to look out for number one. That's me. I'm number one. That's what drives many people today. Depending on your country of origin, perhaps where you were born, the most important moral command may be, do not bring shame upon your family. Do not bring shame upon them. How about this? Don't let others have power over you. Many are driven singularly by that in our day. And perhaps, in my estimation, probably the slogan of our age, the, the moral command of our age, love is love. Now the problem with love is love, this demand to love unconditionally, is that it actually doesn't ever deal with the selfishness and self-centeredness of the human heart. So if a man divorces his wife and marries a younger woman and abandons his family and forsakes all of his commitments and he just says, well, love is love. Just love me regardless. Just love me for who I am. Try telling that to his wife and kids and see how comforted they are by that slogan. There's a whole lot of confusion, brothers and sisters, in our day about what the most important moral command, what, what should orient our lives, what should actually drive us. One simple man evidently decided that, well, he would live by this simple rule. Love many, trust few, and always paddle your own canoe. I like things that rhyme, and that rhymes so I'm generally disposed to that, but that's terrible. Like, if that's the best we can do, we are all in deep weeds. So what moral command do you live by? I mean, what functionally orients and directs your life? The truth is, in one degree, we're all trying to make sense of our lives this morning, aren't we? Whether you're a junior hire or a teenager or maybe you're just getting started, you got a new job coming, or you're perhaps just recently retired, and you're, you're moving into a new season. We're all trying to make sense of our lives. You may look at this last week and think about the choices you made and the decisions you made, and you wonder, well, I thought that was going to lead to something good, but it didn't. So you might wonder why. And perhaps you're here this morning just trying to piecemeal it together. We human beings are actually fairly good at that for a time. I'm going to take a little bit of biblical truth. I'm going to take some pragmatism. I'm going to take some just common sense, maybe. I'm going to try and put it all together. I'm going to try to stay away from suffering. I'm going to try and do things that lead to my own comfort. I'm going to try and piece it together and figure out if, if I can re really live this way. This very religious man that we read here in Mark chapter 12 has questions. And he turns to Jesus. 
for answers. And that's what I want us to do this morning. But we have questions about this too. And we need to turn to Jesus for answers. In fact, Jesus has the only answer that can rightly orient and organize our lives in a way that would really please God and honor him. And in fact, as we'll see here, the answer that Jesus gives to this very religious man is so profound and so brilliant and so exceptional that nobody asks him another question. From this point on, as Mark records it, Jesus sets the agenda. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. In fact, in just two days, Jesus will go to the cross and die for the sins of all humanity to fulfill the purpose for which he was born. So this is the fourth time, by way of context, that some very religious people have questions for Jesus. You may recall at the end of chapter 11, they tested him about his authority. Chapter 12, the beginning, there was a political test. Last week, it was a, it was a theological test. Is it, it concerned the resurrection? And this week, it is a legal test. And it comes from a scribe. A scribe is a, is a lawyer, a very religious man who no doubt was hearing uh, what was going on? He's listening in on this debate. And again, the scribe was part of a, a ruling class, an intellectual, a cultural elite. If you looked at a scribe, you'd say, there's a guy, there's a guy who's got answers. But yet he actually has the question. Now lawyers, and I like lawyers. There are some of you here. I want you to know that. In, in the Bible, lawyers kind of get a bad rap. There's not a lot of ones that we can point to and say, let's be like that guy. But this one, actually, there, there's much, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, there's much to be commended about for this guy. But lawyers in the first century, they love to debate the law. They love to debate which, which law is more important. And there were a lot of laws to choose from. There were 613 specific laws in the Torah. And so oftentimes, these debates would break out between the scribes, these lawyers, and the rabbis about what's the most important. What can be largely ignored? Do we have to even follow that at all? There's an infamous account of, of a Gentile approaching a very prominent first century Jewish teacher, Rabbi Hillel, and he walked up to him and he said, look, if you can give me, summarize the whole meaning of the Torah while standing on one leg, I'll convert. And Rabbi Hillel said, whatever you hate, don't do to your neighbor. That's the whole law, the rest is commentary, go learn it for yourself. Now I don't know if this guy converted, and I don't know if he eventually put his leg down. I'm assuming he did. But there, this debate was ongoing, people were asking all kinds of questions, and so here we have this very religious man who approaches Jesus with this very sincere question, verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? In other words, Jesus just shoots straight. I want to know. I'm having all these debates. We're coming up with all kinds of answers, but I actually want to know, Jesus, what you say. And Jesus, no, notice what he, he doesn't stand on one leg, and he doesn't tell him to go figure it out yourself. He actually, well, he shoots straight, doesn't he? He gives him the answer, verses 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, the first part of Jesus' answer there was really widely known to everyone. Not really a big surprise. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It's called the Shema. It was a very familiar text. In fact, the opening phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was recited at every worship service. The Shema was repeated by every pious Jew in the morning and then in the evening. Godly households hung the Shema on their doors in a, in a very small, usually a small round box. It was actually worn by many devout Jews in a tiny leather box called the phylactery. It's either on the forehead, oftentimes it was around their wrist during prayer. So the Shema was the creed of Israel. It was seen, it was read, it was, it was heard really by everyone. It'd be a little bit like probably John 3.16 in our culture. Now, maybe I'm speaking of days gone past, but there was a time when you don't have to be a Christian, but you could be driving around town and there'd be a billboard and it would just say John 3.16 or a little placard in front of a, a store perhaps. If, if you watched in days past a, a football game on TV and it was an extra point, you'd often see a guy hand, with, with a sign that said John 3.16 right behind the goalpost. So it's not a surprise here that Jesus, being Jewish, would actually quote from the Shema. And he, in fact, adds the phrase, love God with all your mind. So you may have all kinds of questions, but at the very least, brothers and sisters, we can know this, that loving God sincerely and loving God truly, loving God deeply, it is supposed to engage your mind. It's not just feelings. In fact, the point that Jesus is making here is that loving God genuinely, loving God sincerely, is in fact a whole body experience, head to toe. So when Jesus speaks here of the heart and the soul and the mind and the strength, he's not breaking down human personality into certain parts and just saying, well, look, if you got one of those, you're on your right track. If you can get two out of four this week, there's a shot. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus is telling this very religious man of the kind of whole person kind of devotion that is really required to love God truly. So it is a call to love God as first priority with total commitment. The, the center of my whole being, in other words, is directed to him and to his glory. Now, it's harder to see in our English Bibles here. We, we note the, the repetition of the word all, love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and so forth. But in the original language there, it, it is the sense of out of all of you. So you love God out of all your heart. You love God out of all your soul, out of all your mind, out of all your strength. It's called source language because it, it arises out of, it comes from out of, arises out of, all of my heart and so on. So do you understand what Jesus is actually saying here? It's, it's, it's incredibly profound. Jesus is saying that I am to love God out of all of who I am. And that you are to love God out of all of who you are. So that means then that we love God out of all of, arises out of all of our time. 
out of all of our money, our jobs, our careers, our friends, our possessions, our good looks, all of our sexuality, out of all of who we are. Now, if you stop just to consider that for a moment, that's actually pretty humbling, isn't it? And you may be here this morning thinking, like, who, who does that? Can anybody actually do that? Maybe that just seems too hard. I mean, can anybody actually love God in this way? It's a good question. Stay tuned. The second part of the answer that Jesus gives here comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, this was familiar language to many of the Jews, but the implications of that was was really largely lost on them. And I wonder if that's perhaps true for many of us here. You hear me say... We need to love our neighbors. And our, sometimes our reaction is, okay, good. That's super helpful. It's good to be reminded of that. You know, I want to love my neighbors. I'm going to add that to my to-do list this week. I'm going to put that right under pray more, evangelize more, and try not to be guilty about the first two things that I'm not really doing a good job on. What does that even really look like? To love our neighbors in our very average, ordinary lives. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was really super convicted, frankly, this last week. And I had to confess before the Lord. And I said, Lord, I really do want to love my neighbors, but I want it to be easy. I want it to be convenient. I would really love it if you could just kind of fit that into my schedule. And some, most times, loving your neighbor is not very, sometimes it's very, very difficult. And it really doesn't fit into our schedules, does it? So Becky and I, we just had this conversation a week or so ago. We have some neighbors just down the street, and we haven't seen. They're, they're wonderful people, families, similar kids, similar ages. And we just thought, you know, we, we, we want to reach out to them. We need to, we, we, we really want. Our hearts are big for them, so, like, let's invite them over for dessert. Well, so we're, we're working through that. And sometimes, you know, it takes weeks to get a date on the calendar, but, but at least there's, there's something about just being intentional about that. But I think as we think about loving our neighbors, suddenly we, we come up with all kinds of questions. Okay, what does that look like? Who even is my neighbor? Like when Jesus says this, who's he talking about here? So let me handle that one first. Biblically speaking, your neighbor is anyone whose need you are aware of and whose need you can actually meet. Let me say that again. Your neighbor is anyone whose need you are aware of and whose need that you can actually legitimately meet. So neighbor doesn't necessarily only mean it's the person that lives next door to you. It certainly includes that person. It it, it could be the gal or the guy that you share the office cubicle with. So it's it's much less geographic in in nature and much more, okay, who has the Lord put in front of me in normal life, in in the comings and goings of life? There's a need. Maybe it is that the Lord can use me to help me meet that need. So part of, a big part of loving your neighbor well just comes from noticing the people around you. Asking God, make me aware of the people right in front of my face. People that maybe I hadn't given any time or attention to. We have a very specific motive as Christians 
to care for our neighbors, to care about those around us. We actually know something about all people that they may not be aware of themselves and that they may not even know of themselves. You know what that is? We actually know as Christians that every human being, every man, woman, boy, and girl is created in the image of God. And because they are created in God's image, they have meaning and value and dignity and purpose. So even when that image is distorted, and it is because of our sin, in every last one of us, because we're sinners by nature, even that, we, know, we love people, why? Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we see what they were meant to be, and we know of the same compassion and grace and kindness that God has given to us in Christ, and how can we not just love the people around us then? We'd actually have to work really hard to kind of shut off that valve of love when you just start opening it up. We'd have to be real intentional about that. So who are our neighbors? I think about that here. I was praying about that this last week. Well, our neighbors literally are people that live right across the street in those apartments and the people that live behind us in these apartments and the folks in the businesses here. I mean, we got a lot of neighbors, don't we, when we really think about it. Let's just go a little bit beyond maybe a, what, a mile and a half that way. There's a whole bunch of neighbors there. And if you just kind of go about a mile and a half that way, you know where you end up? Central Valley High School. There's, there's thousands of students there, many of whom have no idea that their life has meaning and value and dignity and purpose, not because they're great athletes, not because they get straight A's, not because they're accomplished musician, but simply because they're created by a God who loves them and who sent his son to die for them. Maybe they just need to hear that. Maybe they just need their neighbors to tell them that. Several years ago, I heard theologian Don Carson speak at a conference. This is typically what happens because I'm getting to that age, like I'm just getting old. But I don't remember what he was talking about. I just remember certain pieces of it. And this certain piece, he was talking about this passage in Leviticus 19. He was spelling out many of the practical implications of what it actually looks like. What does it mean to really love your neighbor? from this text here in Leviticus 19. And so this is all in the wider context. I remember thinking, man, that is super helpful. That gives me a way forward. And so I want to share that with you this morning. We should have it up on the screen here. Here's what loving your neighbor looks like. Number one, you care for the poor, Leviticus 19, verse 10. You don't steal or lie, verse 11. You're fair in business dealings, verse 13. You care for the deaf and the blind. In other words, those who are in deep need. You, you deal justly with all, verse 15. You avoid slander and do not jeopardize the life of your neighbor, verse 16. You don't harbor hatred against your brother or take revenge or bear a grudge against others, verse 18. You rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your own good. In other words, you love him, you care about him enough, verse 17. So God doesn't leave it to our imaginations, church, to figure out, I wonder what that looks like. If only... God could be a little bit clearer on what it looks like to really love our neighbors, those around us. No, Jesus as well, he's quite clear on what is to be the organizing principle of our lives. What is to direct our lives? And it's not look out for number one. It's not live your best life now. It's not love is love. 
It is love God out of everything you have. And yes, learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why this answer that Jesus gives to this very religious lawyer is, is so exceptional. I mean, it's, it's amazing, in fact, what he says. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you just read the Bibles, particularly the Gospels, and you come up on stories like this, and you just see Jesus in action, you see Jesus healing, or you see Jesus speaking, and how can you not just think, man, Jesus, you are so amazing. You are so exceptional. And I think it's exactly the case right here. Why is it so amazing what Jesus, the, the answer that Jesus gives this very smart lawyer? Well, for several reasons. Number one, it summarized the entire Ten Commandments. The first four emphasizing, yes, love for God, and the last six delineating our love for neighbor, our fellow human being. And so what Jesus does here, which had not been done before, what Jesus does here is to show that our love for God actually then translates into our love for our neighbor. In other words, it can't be divided. We cannot say, I love you, Lord, but have zero concern for the people around us. That's why the Apostle John would write in 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so, church, the, the horizontal love, love for neighbor, love for those around us, as we see needs, if, if that's breaking down, if you're struggling this morning to love the people around you, and aren't we all, what it actually points to is that there's a disconnect in our love for God. And that's where the focus needs to be. Because everything flows from our relationship with God. And so if we're having struggles, loving our wife, loving our kids, loving our colleague at work, loving a parent, what we ought to be able to do is, Lord, give me more love for you. And out of that, help me so that I can love the people around me. I think it's also exceptional what Jesus does here because notice in the answer that Jesus gives, he doesn't need to quote from any ancient source. He doesn't need to buttress his answer by saying, well, Socrates said, or Plato said, or he doesn't, he doesn't make reference to any of the Stoics. You know what Jesus does? He quotes the scriptures. Deuteronomy 6. Leviticus 19. I mean, this is actually a really good lesson on hermeneutics, on, on how to rightly interpret the Bible. And Jesus knows that the Bible rightly interprets the Bible. So church, you don't have to go to Freud. You don't have to go to Young. You don't have to go to critical race theory. You certainly don't have to go to Jordan Peterson to figure out what the Bible is supposed to be saying. The Bible interprets the Bible. And so we can have confidence in every word that we read in this book. You are not getting a mixed message from the Bible. Now that does not mean that every passage is immediately obvious, easy to understand. No, there are some really, really hard passages there that take time and consideration and a whole lot of counsel to figure out. What I'm simply saying is that God is not ambiguous and Jesus doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. Amen? Praise God that he doesn't. We can trust what we read in here. So this religious lawyer hears Jesus say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's actually impressed by what he just heard. Verses 32 and 33. 
And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, that is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's a lot to like about this lawyer, isn't there? And again, I say that because a lot of lawyers, there's nothing to like about them. In the Bible, at least. But if you show up to church week after week and month after month and year after year and you have little thought about the people who live next to you or little thought about praying for peace in the Middle East, you're not really loving your neighbor. Even the scribe understands that. He's like, it's, it's not going to do you any good to say you love God and to say you love neighbor when you remain unmoved and unchanged. But this lawyer, he seems different, doesn't he? He's honest. He's humble. He's theistic. He knows that there's a God who exists that created the whole world. He, he's probably been surrounded by godly people his whole life. He's, he knows the Torah. He affirms that God is one. He believes the Shema. He also knows that he understands the significance of the human heart. He knows that religious rituals are worthless if it doesn't come from a heart that genuinely knows and loves the Lord. He, he also knows that Burnt offerings and sacrifices can't please God. He knows that loving God directly leads to loving the people around you, loving your neighbor. And he doesn't seem to have any problem with Jesus at all. He's not there to critique him. He's, he's impressed by him. This is a very sincere religious man. If he showed up to church, he came to our membership class, I think we'd all say, man, that guy's got the answers. He's got it dialed in. Why would we not want him to be a member here? I mean, how could our church not be a good fit for a guy like that? And many Americans, depending on the poll, the most recent one, many Americans would sign off on everything that this scribe believes. Every last thing. The latest poll says that 75% of Americans believe in God. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, if most Americans are like this scribe, then 75% of Americans couldn't be members here at GCF. Why not? What's missing? This very sincere lawyer gets a lot right, yet he's still missing something. That's why Jesus says in verse 34, you are not far off from the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you're close, you're near, you're right on the doorstep of the kingdom of God. But you're not yet in. Being close to Jesus, being near the kingdom of God, that's not the same as being in the kingdom of God and living and flourishing in the kingdom of God. I mean, this man, by all accounts, he's, about, he's as close as you can get He's not far off, yet he's not in. So what's missing? What's missing? Faith. Faith. And more specifically, faith in Jesus Christ. 
It is possible to look very religious, to be very religious, to be so close to the kingdom of God and yet still be a long way from Jesus. Does that sound like you this morning? Is that you this morning? This sincere religious man fails to see that the Jesus standing right in front of him is in fact the God of the universe. He he doesn't see that to love the Shema as he does, to love God as he does, to love his neighbor and to grow in love for neighbor as he does means that you actually love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without that, church, well, you can get close to the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom. True faith in Christ means that because you love Jesus Christ out of all of who you are, you know what it means? You burn the boats. You burn the boats. Some of you, I'm sure, have probably heard that expression before in my meticulous Google research this last week. The the phrase, burn the ships or burn the boats, comes from the Mexican explorer Cortez in 1519. This guy set sail to Mexico, very small entourage of ships and sailors and soldiers. Two previous expeditions had failed miserably. Nobody wanted to go there to establish a settlement in the New World. They had failed miserably, but and his odds were not great. One estimate had them at 7,500 to one. In other words, 7,500 soldiers were against every one of his soldiers. Those are not good odds. What he is reported to have done after landing and docking, I suppose, is an epic tale of mythical proportions. So mythical that some historians say, well, did he really do that? Like, did he say burn the ships, but there's one canoe over there, keep that. For the purposes of this illustration, I need him to burn the ships. So we're going to assume that he burned the ships, okay? What he meant by that was there's no retreat. There's no going back. There's no surrender. You count the cost, you're all in. And two years later, he succeeded in his conquest of the Aztec Empire. Why? Because his men burned the boats. To really put your faith in Christ means that you burn the boats. You count the cost. There's no going back. You don't hedge your bets. You don't have one foot in the boat, one foot on land. You're not testing the wind to figure out which way is it blowing. Is it going to go well for me? No, it means that you're all in with Jesus. You have crossed over from death to life, from being fascinated with Jesus, interested in Jesus, thinking, well, I don't have any problems with Jesus, to actually falling on your knees and worshiping him. So it actually does mean total commitment to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've been trying to follow Jesus faithfully without ever burning the boats, can I ask you why? What, what's preventing you from doing that? And I think there's actually two implications here of what it actually looks like from our text here. Two practical implications of what it actually looks like to burn the boats if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully. Here's the first. To really have faith in Jesus means that you open yourself up to being highly unpopular. You open yourself up to being highly unpopular. We don't exactly know what happened to the scribe. 
he's not far off, but we actually don't know if he actually made it in the kingdom. We're going to have to wait till heaven. I hope in heaven we see that guy, that he made it into heaven. But we don't know. What we do know is that if this very sincere religious scribe were to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that would absolutely be scandalous to him and his family. It would cost him. Peter, remember him, he denied Jesus three times because he was afraid of the cost. And perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you're embarrassed about Jesus. You're not alone. Maybe maybe you wonder, what will people think when they actually find out that you follow Jesus, that you love Jesus, and that you're seeking to love your neighbor? Maybe you're in a position of prominence. You're You're a CEO of your company, and you think, well, the employees find out. That's not going to go well for me. How about your friend group or your teammates or your classmates or your mom and dad? What will people think if you go public with your faith in Jesus and you actually begin to burn the boats? Being a Christian in our day, as you well know, in this country, opens ourselves up to being highly unpopular, and that's just the beginning. What is a local church like ours if not a place that we come week after week, Sunday after Sunday to remind ourselves that the best thing that we can do and the best way that we can encourage each other is to love God out of all of who we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves and burn the boats. Burn the boats. Second, to really have faith in Jesus means to put to death religion by law-keeping. Put to death religion by law keeping. Do you remember the rich young man back in Mark chapter 10? Asked a very sincere question as well. Very sincere man walked up to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Probably no more important question. He says, I kept all the commandments from childhood. Jesus, remember what he said? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Be willing to give up everything, Jesus says, for me. Now, Jesus is not just making a statement there about greed or even about money. What he's doing is exploding the foolishness and folly of religion by law-keeping, holiness by towing the party line, by abiding the rules. And Jesus says, if you're trying, if you're trying to get in by man's way, if you're trying to be right with God by keeping the law, that will be absolutely impossible. No one can be saved by that. This scribe, very sincere man, he's in that same, at least at this point, that's what's going on for him. Tell me, Jesus, what's the most important commandment, and I'll do it. I'll obey it. I've had all these discussions. I think you're actually right. That is what's most important. Tell me what I need to do to get in. If we're honest, there's big parts of our lives that are a lot like that scribe. Jesus, tell me what you want. Tell me what you need me to do. Then I can prove myself then I can show you that I'm really invested. Then I can show you that I'm worthy to be saved. Just tell me what you want me to do, Lord, and I'll obey. But you know what that does? That just keeps us in control. We want to right our wrongs, we want to right our own ways, and we end up in the prison of our own thinking. We can never be right before a holy God by keeping the law. Do you know why? Because none of us keep the law. We're all lawbreakers. So it's, it's religion, the, the rule-keeping that says, I'll, I'll be as moral as I can so that God will bless me. 
And it's the gospel that says, God, out of his good, kind grace, gives me the the moral record of Jesus Christ. And now I want to bless him. The gospel is so freeing, brothers and sisters, because it actually begins, actually really begins with some very bad news about us that none of us deserve life. No amount of religious rule-keeping, no amount of being good and looking good without a heart that has been transformed by God's grace can get us into the kingdom. That can get us close. But you do not want Jesus to say to you, you're not. You're not far off. But you're not in. How tragic. True faith in Christ means that we have a new foundational center that Jesus is Lord, which means he has authority over you. It actually means, you know, just practically, you know what that means? It means that you and I, every single day, can freely confess, Lord, I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the wife I want to be. I'm not the mom I want to be. I'm not the dad I want to be. I'm not the friend I want to be. God, have mercy. So you can freely confess your sins to Jesus and know that he has dealt decisively with them. He has nailed them to his cross. So true faith in Christ means that I'm going to bank all of my hope on him and not me. It means I'm going to burn the boat of religious law keeping. And I'm going to bend the knee and surrender to him. We sang about it. John Newton wrote, our sins are many. His mercies are more. Our sins are great. But his righteousness is greater. We are weak He is power. So I wonder what that looks like for us as a church. I wonder what that looks like for you this week. What true faith in Christ means you burn the boats. Is there one step of faith that perhaps Jesus is calling you to take today? Maybe this week. Maybe it is to pray for courage to have that conversation with a family member, to share the gospel with a colleague at work. Maybe you're hearing you think, that step of faith, I'm, I'm going to lead my family in devotions one time this week. I'm going to leave here ready to fight sin in a new way. I'm not going to depend on my own resources. But I'm going to fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to fight in a new way the sinful desires of my flesh this week. Amen. Maybe it is, as Drew prayed, as we are changing here at GCF, we, yeah, we're going to need several of you to step up and serve in some specific areas. Maybe that step of faith is, you know what? I want to find out more about that. I'm going to volunteer to serve. That'd be my joy. True faith in Christ means you burn the boats. What does that look like for you this week? This scribe is not far off from the kingdom, but he's not in yet. But he understands what Jesus is saying in these two great commands. He understands the reality. No one loves God and loves neighbor as we ought to. And Jesus essentially is standing before him saying, no one but me. I can. I have. And I can help you. In fact, that is the very work of Christ to die on the cross for people like us who don't love God, who don't love Jesus, who are often selfish and self-centered, and we live by our own mantra, or we live by what works, we live by our pragmatism. And sometimes we can go weeks just ignoring, months even, the clear command of Scripture. Jesus says, I'm going to die for you on the cross. I'm going to take your sins upon me.
this scribe had the right way of thinking about the world. He, had, he knew the right things to do, but he never yet trusted in the one who could make him right. So at this point, he didn't, he didn't burn the boats. If any man deserved to get in the kingdom, I'd say it's this guy. If any man deserved to, to be in the kingdom of God without the cross of Christ, I would point to this guy. But brothers and sisters, there is a cross. And only by clinging to the crucified Savior and by recognizing who he is and by putting your faith in him can you live and enter and flourish in God's kingdom. Some of you this morning are close. You are not far off. You are near. You're on the right track. You're impressed by Jesus. Fascinated by Jesus. You don't have anything against Jesus. But as Jesus teaches us here, simply by being close to him or standing on the doorstep of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that you're actually in. Some of you may have been standing on the doorstep for two years, 10 years, maybe longer. You're not far off. But is Jesus really your savior? Are you in his kingdom? Put Christ where he belongs, at the very center of your life, and enter in today. Love Jesus Christ out of all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And yes, out of that, we learn to love our neighbors. And then we burn the boats. Let's pray.